and growth is a much more common outcome of even the worst kind of adversity and tragedy in the world. And so believe it or not, whatever it is that you're experiencing as maybe your greatest problem right now, it also points to, I think, your highest purpose and your greatest purpose, which ultimately for me is all about happiness. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? We are bringing Uncovered live from Zoom land because, you know, COVID, anti-COVID is continuing to, you know, stop me from being in the United States to see this man. <laughs> so we're, we're going to do it via Zoom, which is awesome anyway. Um, you know, if you're listening to us on just via um, audio, this is Femi here and I've got my boy. It's your boy, Nick, live and hot. For my MacBook Air, <laughs> crazy, it's crazy. But I love you know what? Like before we get stuck into, I want to just say something. Like I love the fact that we that COVID has given us the opportunity. I know people say this a lot, but I really do think there's been a huge silver lining about COVID because the truth is, you know, if we didn't have the opportunity to realize the power of things like Zoom and how easy it actually is to connect with someone even via Zoom. Uh, we probably wouldn't be having these connections. We probably wouldn't be having these conversations because someone would be like, I don't want to do an interview over Zoom, bro. Like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Like, if, you can't, if you can't come to LA, <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> you know, no, thank you. No, thank you. So I'm really, really blessed yeah. to, you know, I'm really, really trying to see the positive, um, positive light, which kind of links perfectly into what we've got going on today. It's all about positive psychology and being able to put that in the forefront of your mind. So we have the king of positive psychology, Mr. <laughs> Robert Mack. What's going on, Rob Mack? How are oh, you? Oh, man, fellas, what's up, man? Such a great point. You're right. We otherwise wouldn't get to connect in this way. I'd have to wait for you to come to LA or I'd have to come there to Australia. <laughs> exactly, exactly, which is crazy. It's crazy, right, that we get to be, I mean, what is it, 16,000 miles or something like that? Something ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and it's just like you're right in front of me. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. true. And like, this is our first time, like we've done this podcast now for like two years. And this is our first time doing a podcast with a guest from that's international. We've actually never mm. done this before. And like, even doing it right now, I think this is so sick. We should do it way often. Yeah. Rob, this is a big deal. You're our first international guest. It's man. a lot of pressure, man. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Can't represent the rest of the world. <laughs> so this whole episode is just going to be us asking Rob about what it's like to be American What's American life? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. What do all Americans represent, Rob? What do they, they all say? <laughs> oh, awesome, man. But look, I'm really, really excited for this podcast. I think this one's going to be great. And I think that a lot of our listeners are going to be able to benefit so much for it. And I guess the way I want to kind of start it, right, is that obviously you've worked with big celebrities, you've worked with big organizations, you've worked with Microsoft, you've done all these things. What made you want to get into the route of positive psychology? Like where did it all kind of stem from? Oh man, great question. You know, uh, it was very humble beginnings, brother, very humble, humble <laughs> beginnings. I was like the unhappiest kid you can ever imagine. I was just unhappy mm -hmm. from like basically birth. I remember being really unhappy, really self-loathing, hated myself and I was, just filled with stress and anxiety. And I always thought over time I would grow out of that. You know what I'm saying? I was like into basketball. You know, I didn't love school that much, but I did pretty well because I was afraid of my dad, you know, <laughs> he's a disciplinarian and he made sure we, you know, 
did what we needed to do to get through school and stuff. So I always thought, look, I'll get good grades. Maybe who knows? I'll get a college basketball scholarship. I have a girlfriend at some point. Maybe I'll even make some friends. And I'll just grow out of this unhappiness. But that didn't happen, man. It just got worse and worse and worse. I became more and more depressed to the point that I became suicidal. And then I decided I was going to do some research on ways to kill yourself. Mm. I decided I was going to slit my wrist. So I went to the kitchen, got a kitchen knife, and then just rammed it into my wrist, you know. And oddly enough, man, at that moment, without anything in my external circumstances or conditions changing, because honestly, I had a good life. I was healthy. I had a good job. I didn't really like the job. But I made good money, I had a beautiful girlfriend, you know, I had a good life, but despite all that was still so deeply depressed. When I rammed this knife into my wrist for no good reason, without anything else changing, I just felt like peace for the first time in my life. It was really like this palpable joy and uh, even love, you know? And so for, it was very, very unexpected, you know, it was a bit of a surprise to me. So in that moment I was like, oh, this is odd. You know, maybe I should put off the suicide thing for like, an hour. And that's all I committed to in the beginning, man. It was like an hour, you know, it was like, and honestly, I wasn't even committed to the whole hour. I was just like, eh, maybe an hour. But in my head, I was like, I probably can do five minutes. And in the five minutes, I started doing a little bit of research. And then lo and behold, I started finding out that there were a lot more people out there in the world who were deeply depressed and suicidal than I was ever aware of. And I also discovered that there were lots of people that had solved for it. So that's what began my sort of research and that eventually led me to discover, you know, the field of positive psychology. Mm. So how did that, cause that's a, that's a big transition, right? To go from being in that kitchen to now being someone that's dedicated their life to positive psychology. What's that in between? Like how, what was the transition into that? Did you, you know, did you have to, like, what was the, what was the thought process? Like? Cause that's huge. That's a huge transition. It's a great question. You should, you should do this maybe for a living or something. <laughs> you know, it was, it, it, it was, it, it mean, in between that moment and when I actually matriculated into that applied positive psychology program at the University of Pennsylvania, there was like over a decade. And in that mm. decade, mostly it was me taking two steps forward, like a hundred steps back, right, reading everything right. I get my hands on, asking people, random people sometimes, like, you seem like a happy person. Why are you happy? You know, like just everything I could basically discover about happiness and unhappiness, I tried to discover. And little by little, I started digging myself out of this deep, dark, depressing hole that I had dug for myself. Mm. Somewhere in that period of time, I made some very drastic decisions as well. You know, the first decision, of course, was that instead of focusing on unhappiness and depression and all the reasons I had to be depressed, I started making a study of happiness, right? Mm -hmm. Second decision was like, look, if this really good job and great money and you know, very troublesome relationship, but beautiful, wonderful woman, it's all leading me to feel so deeply depressed. Maybe I should make different decisions. You know, so I decided, well, I'm gonna move to Miami from Philadelphia. I didn't like the cold weather. I like warm weather. I like beaches. You know, I decided I was gonna, you know, work this corporate job anymore. I was gonna try and do something else. And mm. I made all these decisions. And honestly, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I was just trying to do something new. I was trying to you know, mix things up a little bit and it was scary, but one thing led to the next, led to the next. And so in that period of time, I was like tracking everything that was working in terms of happiness, tips, tricks, and tools. And I was mm. keeping it in a journal. And then when I would 
eventually booked these modeling gigs because at some point in time, when I didn't have a corporate job, I couldn't find any other jobs. I was approached once on this uh, road called Lincoln Road in Miami, South Beach, by a guy. He said, hey, you ever modeled before? Now, I thought I was the ugliest guy in the world, man, you know, so I never thought something was possible for me. So in any case, I Happens thought it was to me I know that's true. I know you look clean. I can tell. I can tell. Um, so, you know, he said, hey, you want to come to the agency? I thought he was joking. Then it happened to me again the following week. So eventually I went into the agency. But long story short, I started this modeling and acting career for about 10 years. But the wow. entire time, I really just wanted to do my little scene and then get back to the trailer so I could read my happiness books and my don't kill yourself books, you know, mm -hmm. and take notes on them because that's what I was doing. So long story short, I was doing that. And then I eventually found this program at University of Pennsylvania um, in applied positive psychology and uh, mm. my, my private practice. Yeah, That's amazing. So you went on your, sorry, sorry to cut you, Nick, because I think that's just really interesting. So you went on your own pursuit of happiness, right? And what was the point where, or was there ever a point where it kind of clicked to you that, okay, I'm either starting to become happy or I am now happy you know i felt like i was recreating the wheel from scratch you know mm -hmm. and so i didn't really even know what direction it turned so it took me longer than it needs to take anybody else but i would say it was like man it was probably a year and a half or two before i suddenly came to the recognition that oh wait i haven't thought about killing myself like dozens of times today mm -hmm. and, and that, i don't really remember not thinking about that yesterday either you know, like it, it was like that kind of thing. It was, it, was, it had happened so subtly and, and yet at the same time, so suddenly, right. It was like so slow, but all of a sudden it just occurred to me that I, it must be working. Some of these things must be working. So it took me probably about a year and a half or so before it really started to click and then build more and more momentum. And at some point you hit a tipping point and then you have momentum behind you and it becomes a lot easier. Yeah. It's incredible. And I think, what really stuck out to me is the point that you were talking about. You had all these things that I guess from any external point of view is like, yeah, you're ticking all the boxes for happiness. You know, you've got a girlfriend, got a job, maybe a loving family. You've got all these things. So it's like, okay, well, why aren't you happy? Why are you now at the verge of now being like, I'm going to slip my wrist. I'm suicidal. I'm trying not to kill myself. And I think those are the signs that people often don't really recognize. They think that from an external point of view, it's like, yeah, everything's gravy. That's what happiness is. That's what it is that I'm striving for. But we see it time and time again. You know, we see these celebrities, these people that people idolize that are at the verge of wanting to end their lives. So what do you think takes people to that point? Or what do we, I guess, actually, let me reframe that question to be, what do you actually believe happiness to really be? Happiness is your true nature. It's innately, intrinsically, inherently who and what you are. So when your mind is cool, quiet, calm, collected, composed, essentially when you are not thinking or overthinking, you already are perfect, peaceful aliveness. That peaceful aliveness is happiness, right? Another word for that is love, love happiness, peace. They're all synonyms. They're different expressions of the same energy, but ultimately it's what you are, right? And it's, a, it's an, an experience of peaceful aliveness. The feeling that you have when you're just happy for no reason, you're just, peacefully alive or alive in a peaceful way for no reason at all. You can come up with reasons why, but it just sort of transcends all of that. And so we all experience a, we always, we all experience that all the time, but it's so clouded 
and covered up with so many thoughts and so many concerns and worries and so many activities that we don't take enough time to sort of deepen into or rest and relax into this inherent, innate, intrinsic, peaceful aliveness that's always inside of us, mm -hmm. right? And so that's what I did. I think most of us do that. We take the long scenic route or path to happiness. We route it through other people, other things, other places, mm -hmm. you know, and eventually you come around to realizing that even the most beautiful car, most beautiful man or woman, even the most incredible job and unlimited money can't give you the one thing that you, you know, actually essentially are. Mm. So, so I think that's, that makes a lot of sense. So happiness is trying to achieve that true alignment with self, right? So that begs the question. So first of all, it means that you're trying to eliminate the external factors. So it makes me beg the question like, okay, so do external factors draw you further away from happiness? So if they may not be adding to your happiness, but does that mean that they're actually drawing you further away? And if that's the case, should we be trying to avoid those things and going on a on a on a, our own kind of journey of trying to discover self? You have thought about this before, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny that you say that because I think a lot of us, um, I know I certainly struggle with that particular question. And I will answer that question by saying yes and no, right? So in other words, like if you play it out long enough, everything and everybody ultimately leads you back to yourself because you come to realize and recognize through your experience with that person, place, or thing that they can't deliver on the false promise they make, which is I will make you happy. Nothing and nobody can ultimately lastingly, meaningfully and abidingly make you happy. It's impossible because it's what you are, right? And so in the long term, all those things eventually lead you back to yourself. But in the short term, you have these experiences and you think, oh, for a little while, I got a little pleasure and it did make me happy, but then it fades. And then so you chase a bigger version of that or a better version of that or a different version of that. And then you get that and then it fades. You know, and so you're always chasing this moving target. Um, and interestingly enough, the target that you're looking for, the goal that you're seeking is within you, it's yourself, right? And so the answer is that yes, external things lead you away from the source of true peace, love and happiness itself. And yet at the same time, they also lead you back to the source of true love, peace and happiness mm. itself. And then there's also something greater than that, which is, and I don't wanna go too far with this, but all those things also are contained within your consciousness itself. And so they actually aren't external to who and what you are because who and what you are is consciousness itself, right? And so there's a whole nother level to it, which is that, so it's yes, no, and you know, all things being equal, you can't really ever leave the source. You can't really ever go after anything external because it's all inside of you. The world is not outside mm. of you, it's inside of you, right? So I know that might get a little bit abstract or esoteric, but that's just the truth. Wow. Yeah, that makes, I think that makes perfect sense because it's sometimes you need that external reminder that isn't the one that's actually doing its job, but it's just reminding you that you are capable of doing that job, right? Like a good, let's say, for example, a good manager or leader, they're not the one that's actually doing the job for you and making you good at the job, but they're the one that is, ex, you know, showing you that you are the one that is capable of it. Yeah. So good, man. I, I love the way you put that. It's true. I, I kind of think of, everybody and everything in the world as a personal trainer for unconditional mm. happiness or personal trainer mm. for self-love or personal trainer for unconditional peace to your point it's like yeah i mean we see all these things and people in places as in, on one hand as something we're trying to achieve on the other when they're not desirable we see them as something to be overcome but ultimately mm. if we look at it they're all unwittingly or wittingly 
cooperating together, collaborating together for our good, for our happiness, right? Mm. And it doesn't always look that way or feel that way when you're in the throes of an argument or you can't, you know, get the girl, you can't, you know, get the money or whatever. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's all bringing you back to a much deeper, fuller recognition of your unlimited power and your unlimited happiness. Amazing. That's so I love that. I want to ask you, Rob, what, what is the role that epigenetics play in happiness? Because we're going off the angle that happiness is intrinsic, it's up to us. Surely there's like a genetic makeup or there's something in there that plays a role in our happiness. Great point, man. So there's a formula, you know, positive psychology researchers have come up with a formula for happiness, which is basically H equals C plus S plus V. So H is the happiness equals C, circumstances and conditions. So that's usually what most of us think about when we think about happiness. It's, you know, it's the money, it's the car, it's the health, it's the beauty, it's the youth, whatever. That, believe it or not, only accounts for 10% of your overall happiness score. So if you were to think about or dream up your ideal life with unlimited money and unlimited partners, whatever it is you want in your life, that would only still account for 10% or less of your overall happiness score rating, okay? Then there's the, um, so the C, the S is really what we're talking about when we talk about sort of epigenetics and, uh, and DNA, really. We're talking about a genetic set point. So we all are born or come into the world with a set point. We're hardwired for a certain amount of happiness, essentially. And about 50% of our overall happiness score is hardwired into our body. Now, here's the thing. It's not really truly hardwired. It's more like softwired. And so as you go about living your life, you can turn that, you know, number up, you can turn it down based on, you know, what you eat, who you spend time with, the activities you engage in, the thoughts that you entertain in your head. And so that 50% is perfectly malleable, right? So it's not like height, you know, it's not really like eye color. You can change it, it's changeable, it's plastic, right? And so that gets into the science of neuroplasticity. But the point is, is that you can turn on and off genes simply by the thoughts you think or the company you keep or the food you eat or the environment in which you spend your time. And so that 50% totally malleable, the, the final, uh, 40% of this happiness equation is the V, which is voluntary activities. And so really what we're saying is at least 90%, I would argue 100%, but at least 90% of your happiness is totally within your control. Man, that's, you know, that's actually really exciting. So like for the people that are listening as well, people that feel like uh, I can't be happy or my circumstances, my conditions or whatever, then allow me to have that fulfillment and joy in my life. Basically, for what I'm understanding you're saying, Rob, is that we have the choice, we have the power to be able to bring happiness into our life because it's something that's ingrained with us. And it's interesting because in a lot of our experience, because we're off the back of it from a clinical perspective in a hospital, a lot of the people that we speak with, they've been exposed to significant amount of traumas, significant amount of conditions that have had significant impact impacts on their life, the way they go about with doing things, um, and all these preconditions that have occurred in their life. And if I understand correctly, we're saying that only 10% of that um, contributes to our happiness. So that means then for the people that are stuck and are feeling like they can't go past their traumas, what kind of advice would you say to them? Oh, so good, man. You guys give me shivers just connecting. That's, I get these soul <laughs> shivers, you know, when you're connecting with people that you just feel like you're one with, right? And so I'll say two things to that. You know, one is I don't want anyone out there to feel that first of all, first of all, I want to say happiness is an equal opportunity endeavor, okay? Now that being said, that being said, 
there are definitely extenuating conditions and circumstances in our lives that make it extraordinarily difficult or more difficult to find that happiness, right? If you come into the world and you're born wired a little low on happiness or you're born into abject poverty, right? Or you're born without parents or you have, you know, it makes it can make it much more difficult in lots of ways to find that happiness. Now, in other ways, it can actually facilitate and expedite your finding the source of happiness within you, right? Because all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're forced to turn back on yourself and look deep inside for whatever it is that you're trying to find in the world, right? So that's the first thing. Um, and, and positive psychology has found that, you know, if you're not able to pay your basic, for basic necessities and you're living in abject poverty, more money will increase your happiness, right? And so please know that, that it's not just that, you know, if you, you know, are absolutely homeless and, you know, poverty stricken, that, you know, life is just, you know, um, going to be charmed existence. It's not. Now, further than that, more importantly, what we found is that, you know, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, gets most of the airplay and the airtime in the world. So we hear about people going through major trials or tragedies um, or some kind of travesty and they experience this adversity and they experience, you know, a host of sort of negative effects as a result of that, adverse you know, mental and physical health effects as a result of that. And we talk about PTSD. But interestingly enough, post-traumatic growth is a much more consistent, much more common outcome, even when people experience PTSD first, right? So post-traumatic growth, what that means is that most people actually may experience all kinds of negative repercussions or effects as a result of facing some kind of major life tragedy or adversity. And yet, most people still experience post-traumatic growth, you know, on the heels of that. And so post-traumatic growth is a much more common outcome of even the worst kind of adversity and tragedy in the world. And so believe it or not, whatever it is that you're experiencing as maybe your greatest problem right now, it also points to, I think, your highest purpose and your greatest purpose, which ultimately for me is all about happiness. And how does that, how does someone start that journey for post-traumatic growth? How does that kind of start? Because like Nicholas said, if we're looking at it from our own clinical experience, it's a very difficult thing, right? It's kind of like, yeah, of course you can, of course you can climb that wall, but I've dug, you know, you're starting from six feet underneath the ground, you know, and it's so much harder to get out of, to even get to level ground to start climbing the wall. So how do people start that process of being able to grow through that um, traumatic experience? Yeah, so I'll separate separate out a little here two different phenomena. There's resilience, okay? Resilience is something that generally you can build, right? And so that's mostly revolves around um, your explanatory style. So a more optimistic explanatory style um, around good, good events and negative events, that, that's gonna help you be a lot more resilient, right? So when something bad happens, do you personalize it? Do you see it as pervasive? Do you see it as something that's gonna persist through time and space and all that good stuff, right? And so you wanna develop an increasingly optimistic sort of explanatory style that will help you continue to move forward in your life. So even in the face of adversity and, and, and trauma and stress, okay? So there's that, right? But when we talk about post-traumatic growth, what's interesting is that it's often the people that are least resilient who actually benefit or experience the most post-traumatic growth. And what they found is there's two main qualities or traits that are associated with the most post-traumatic growth or the most consistent experiences of post-traumatic growth. And that's openness and extroversion. So openness is being open to experiences, new perspectives, new thoughts, new people, new environments, right? A new life, right? The other extroversion is really that's a desire or a sort of um, feeling inspired to reach out, you know, sort of beyond you, seek out help, connect with people, right? So those two qualities or traits 
if you can cultivate those things, will let you grow as a result of any kind of adversity or stress that you face in your life. But I would say that those three things together are generally good pieces of advice for all of us anyway, is do what you can to reach out to other people, especially if you need help, but also in order to help other people, you know, also helps to stay open, open-minded, open-hearted, open-hand, but also, you know, develop an ex ex sort of an optimistic explanatory style. Those three things are extraordinarily helpful in sort of overcoming almost any adversity. Amazing. I want to just switch the, the direction a little bit because what I'm hearing is this, this concept is amazing, but like you said, it's quite abstract and almost, you know, the abstractness of psychology usually goes quite hand in hand with spirituality, right? So I want to ask you, what's your take on the, the role that spirituality has in our own happiness? And do you find that people that are more spiritual in whatever capacity tend to find more happiness due to the fact they can give them peace, purpose, calmness, whatever. Um, and is this something that you encourage people to, to look into? Such a beautiful, poignant, profound question, man. Like, I, so when I, I grew up Christian, you know, and uh, and the most incredible parents, but I had a knee-jerk reaction against like traditional Christianity, okay? Like I felt a lot of guilt and I had a lot of problems with Christianity. And so I had this knee-jerk reaction. So I kind of put religion to the side for a long time. And I began to look into science. And when I was struggling the most, I was leaning into science because science is something that I could not just believe in, but see evidence for. Okay. Like, you know, lots of studies, thousands of studies, whatever, and that could get behind, you know, behind that. But what I found was that over time, science and psychology only took me so far. Like, you know, it took me to the place where I could sort of, you know, come up with better feeling but truthful stories about my life, I could put into action these coping skills that I had learned. And that was all very helpful in sort of keeping me from, you know, spiraling back in the ways that I had before, you know, self-rumination, all that good stuff. But it was actually ultimately spirituality, I think, and to this day it still is, that brings me the most peace and the most calm in my life. And so, you know, I have a hard time and I know, you know, probably some of my more purest you know, friends, psychology, you know, psychology purists, they, they probably don't love that. I often have this tendency to like mix language a little, you know, because for me, it's kind of, they've been both so helpful and I can clearly see the delineation between the psychology and spirituality, but there is a spirituality to psychology and there's a psychology to spirituality. And so ultimately I would say that if you left me a choice at this point in my life and I had to choose between all my psychology books or all my spirituality books, I'm probably going to stick with the spirituality books at this point. They just bring me a lot more peace and calm and true happiness. That's awesome. And I, and I like the exact same as well, because I know that for myself, like Femi and I, we're both Christians. And there's been times where I felt so low, unmotivated. I had symptoms of me experiencing things that I would normally tend to enjoy that I no longer find the joy in doing those anymore. And for me, it was like kind of what we've been saying this whole kind of podcast is that that ability to be able to connect internally and kind of find that element of peace and calmness within was something that was missing for me trying to find those external factors that were giving, giving me that short kick of happiness, but then suddenly fade away. And I found that with my faith and when I come back to spirituality that I can just really sit in it for much longer and then I can take that with me 
to, you know, throughout the rest of the day into my life. And there are obviously going to be moments and setbacks where external factors might influence my mood again, but I always know that my safe place um, is within Christianity and having my faith. So what do you feel then about people, you know, having that safe space in terms of their journey for, for happiness? Is that really essential or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, from a psychology perspective, we know that folks who have a spiritual bent or a spiritual religious tradition that they associate or affiliate with generally report higher levels of happiness. And of course they do for multiple reasons, not the least of which is a, you know, community of people that they have shared values with, right? That's extraordinarily helpful. We know when it comes to happiness from a psych positive psychology perspective, almost nothing is more important than relationships. Relationships matter and they matter a great deal. And it doesn't have to be romantic relationships at all, just relationships where you feel connected. It could be platonic or professional or romantic or you know, familial, it doesn't matter. But that connection, you know, having a robust social network is everything when it comes to happiness from you know, a positive psychology perspective. I would go beyond that and say that for me, spirituality has also allowed um, me to create, to find a safe space with others, yes. But more importantly, to find that safe space within myself that I can always retreat to, into or live from that abide in, you know, and um, that allows me incredible, you know, depth of peace and happiness and love. The other piece of it too, is that there's a transfer of responsibility that happens in spirituality. It doesn't happen in psychology, right? You are fully responsible for every little bit that happens in your life. And that used to stress me out, you know, even new age spirituality doesn't allow for that necessarily because it says, well, every thought you think is going to manifest in some way. And so, you know, I became almost obsessive about that. I was stressed out and anxious that every thought I had was going to manifest in something scary, you know, if I wasn't very careful. But when I went beyond that and I went deeper, I began to realize and recognize that, you know, the mind is a beautiful tool and psychology makes great use of that tool. Um, but it also, you know, could be an incredible troublemaker. And so spirituality, I think, particularly mystical spirituality allows you to go beyond the mind to discover this place of no mind where there is nothing ever but perfect peace. Man, that like, I'm so taken back with this podcast. What you're saying, Robert, like this is so good. And I know that ah, like, like even myself, I'm learning so much from this podcast and it's so beneficial. I want to ask you a quick question and I just have to ask it because it's like, you just reminded me, but it's on the topic of relationships. Um, and I know Femi might be smiling because he probably saw this coming, but um, a lot of the clients that we speak to, a lot of their happiness, or they were in a relationship, romantic relationship, to be clear. And maybe for the first five years, they found joy in that relationship. They were happy. They were living their best life, however they want to define it. And then noticed it. And then suddenly they found a dip, but the dip was coming from their partner. The, their partner was manifested in energy that wasn't congruent to how they wanted to feel. Talk to us about how people in these relationships can navigate happiness while still having the responsibility um, of the other person. Wow, it's a really great remark and insight you have there. Great question. You know, the happiest relationships consist of two independently happy people. I have to repeat that because we always find ourselves wanting to blame or hold responsible the other person person for how we feel, you know, and it doesn't happen just in you know romantic relationships. It happens in all relationships, but the happiest relationships consist of two independently happy people. And so a huge piece to being happy together is knowing how to be happy alone. 
right? If you can be happy in your aloneness, you can be happy in your togetherness. But if you don't know how to be happy in your aloneness, you can never be happy in your togetherness with anyone else, you know? And so we always, not always, but usually, particularly when we're a little younger and we haven't, you know, learned a whole yet, a lot yet, we, you know, hope that relationships will save us, that they'll complete us, that somehow some other person will make us happy. But of course, we are quickly disabused of that idea, you know, if we've had enough relationships. So the key really, and the challenge is, you know, to be responsible for your own happiness, to make happiness your happiness, your job, and to encourage the other person to make happiness their job, right? And to remember that it's not your pleasure and privilege to make the other person happy. Not just that, but if you were successful at making the other person happy, you would actually do them a great disservice because you would train them away from the very source of happiness within themselves. And if they did the same for you, if they made you happy by doing everything you always wanted them to do, just when you wanted them to do it, they would train you away from your source of unconditional happiness within you. And they would do you an incredible disservice. And so relationships are designed not really to make you happy. They're designed to make you aware, particularly self-aware and aware of your own source of happiness within. But when you become increasingly aware, you become increasingly happy, right? And so that's really the key there is, you know, if you can, we call it cognitive agility and emotional regulation or self-regulation, self-soothing. But in other words, you know, you got to make happiness your own job, pleasure and privilege, and you got to make or encourage the other person to do the same. And then that, therefore, you won't be two beggars in a relationship that are each trying to beg for money off the other. You'll each be independently wealthy. So you have something to share in the relationship. Yeah, spot on. I think that's spot on because that's something that we speak about all the time about about relationships, right? And you know, we're not relationship experts at all, but from our own experience and our own clinical perspective, we know that you know before you can even have, like you said, you can't before you can have a fruitful and thriving relationship, you need to have a relationship within yourself. Your solidity needs to be within yourself because you know to uneven beams or unsteady beams are not going to be able to support each other right they're not they're not they're not going to be able to work well i think that what you're saying is so powerful when people don't realize it enough because a detriment like the same way that a, a good healthy thriving relationship is super beneficial the same is on the is on the on the on the reverse a toxic unhealthy you know uh unloving disruptive relationship is highly detrimental to our own peace and happiness and and positive psychology so i think that being able yeah so being able to understand that is a huge huge point i'm glad that you raised it so glad no you absolutely crushed that right there i mean you're absolutely right about that you know it's easy um you know to fall into the trap of thinking that your happiness is somewhere outside of you and in the future, like that's the ultimate trap. That's what practically every, you know, every mistake we make around happiness is really kind of two kinds of mistakes. One mistake is looking for happiness outside of you in the future or in the past when it's really inside of you right here and now. And the second is that every case of unhappiness is really a, a case of mistaken identity, right? You, you, you think that you are this lifestyle or you think that you are this job or you think that you are this money or you think that you are this body or you think that you are this mind. And so when something happens to the body or the mind, the reputation, the job, the money, suddenly you think something's happened to you, but you're that which is aware of all these things. You're so much bigger than that, right? You're so much more all-encompassing than that. And you're so much more untouchable and invincible and immovable and unshakable than that, right? And so, yeah, at the end of the day, it's just usually some erroneous 
ideas that we have around happiness that misleads us or misguides us in terms of finding happiness. For sure, for sure. So for the people that I've inspired, including myself, off the back of this, and they're wanting to pursue their journey of happiness, where can they start? And I want us to kind of like, maybe if you would mind for the first part about relationships, because I think that was so powerful. And for people that are in relationships, they might be like, yeah, I've been quite codependent on this other person bringing my joy and happiness. And now I want to step away. How do people firstly have that conversation to be like, you need to be responsible for your happiness. I need to be responsible for my happiness. And then after that, what is the, for people that aren't in relationships, what does the journey kind of look like for when they want to start that journey? Yeah, yeah. So you have that conversation with a partner or lover very carefully, <laughs> very diplomatically, very sensitively, right? Um, so, it, you know, I am a big believer in positive communication. So there's an acronym that I use that I love, which is before I speak, think. And think stands for T. The T is true. So I want to say what I'm going to say in a way that's just as true. The H is helpful. The I is inspiring. The N is necessary. And the K is kind. So you want to try to say what you want to say or what you need to say in a way that's true, helpful, inspiring, only share what's necessary and say it in the kindest way possible, right? So it might sound something like, you know, sweetheart, you know, I love you so much and there's nothing that makes me happier than knowing that you're happy and I want to be happy and I know that you want to be happy. And I've also discovered I'm not really good at always making you happy in just the way that I want you to be happy. And I've got a feeling that you're probably even better than me, you know, at finding or being the happy person that I know that you ultimately are. And so I know that my job and my pleasure and privilege is to find and to work on, you know, deepening my own happiness. And I want to do everything possible, everything that I can do to support each of us in finding the happiest relationship or creating the happiest relationship possible. And so I'd love to talk to you about, you know, how I can deepen my happiness and how I can support you in you deepening your happiness. And, you know, let's talk about it because at the end of the day, we're in this thing because we both want to be happy and there's nothing that we want more. So anyway, be something like that, but you want to do what you can to try and stay focused on what you're going to take responsibility for and what the ways in which you want to support them in finding or gaining or achieving what they want. What you want to be careful of is doing the opposite of that, which is telling them what to do or telling them what you're not going to do. You know, you could say all that stuff, but you got to, you want to say it in a way that they can, that keeps their mind and their heart and their ears open to actually receiving it and executing against it, if that makes sense, right? In, in terms of, you know, folks that are or aren't in a relationship, you know, I kind of think of it as that of the happiness journey is like maybe a four-step process. It is possible to jump directly to the fourth step because the fourth step is a cheat code, okay? It's like a master key. And I sort of, you know, gave a little teaser on, on that a little earlier, but the four steps are, are very simple. The first step is, you know, it's all about happiness being what you do, right? So when we start a happiness journey, we mostly think, look, I want to take some trips. I want to see some beautiful women or some incredible guys. You know, it's like, I just want, I want to make some money. You know, it's that. So what you want to do is you want to just track or write down what I call your happiness islands. Those are activities or things that you enjoy doing, that you feel inspired doing, that you feel energized for having done, but write down your happiness islands. Right? So those are activities that with very little time, energy, effort, allow you to feel happy to be alive. But then at some point you graduate beyond that. And so as step two, you wanna begin looking into your life, your social life, and do what you can to only spend time with people that if aren't happy, at least aspire to be happy. 
one of the most detrimental things you can do in terms of happiness is spend time with people who don't want you to be happy or don't even have happiness on their radar at all, right? Generally, the happiest person doesn't pull the less happy person up. Instead, the least happy person pulls the happy people down, okay? So it doesn't matter how strong you are in happiness. Generally, if you're surrounded by unhappy people, they will pull you down, okay? So that's number two. The third step is really about telling a better feeling story about everything and everybody in your life, starting with yourself. So you tell a truthful but better feeling story. So instead of saying, you know, it's a terrible day outside, you say, oh, it's raining today. Just stick to the facts. Or I really love the sunshine. I'm really looking forward to the sunshine, right? Or if you have $0 in your bank account, you don't need to say I'm broke. You might say something, it's only up from here. You know, it's only up from here. But the story has to be truthful but better feeling, right? Because if it's not truthful, it won't be better feeling. That's the third step. It's really about positive thinking. We'll call it that. It goes a little bit beyond that. But the fourth step is, so at some point in your journey, you realize that happiness is not what you do because sometimes you can be doing something that you thought was fun and exciting, but today it sucks. Happiness isn't just about the people that you spend time with because sometimes you can be with the most loving, incredible people, but you still feel miserable. Happiness is not just about the thoughts you think because you can sometimes have the same thought you had yesterday, but one day you were happy having that thought and the next day you're really miserable having the thought, right? Think about how many relationships you've been in. That same person, the same thought about the person made you feel happy at one point, miserable at the next. So the final st stage is, is, is a recognition that happiness is not what you do. Happiness is not who you, just who you spend time with. Happiness is not what you think. It's not a state of mind. Happiness is not even a state of mood. Happiness is a state of being. And by being, I mean no mind. So you get to a place where even positive thinking becomes stressful and anxiety producing and too much work. And you rest and relax into the thoughtless, wordless, infinite, eternal awareness of your own existence. It's just like sitting here and for a second, just being an idiot, not thinking, not worrying, not think, you know, not plotting or planning or scripting anything, just breathing, not thinking. And then that is already perfect happiness. And you realize that if you can do it once, just rinse, wash, repeat, you can do it again and again and again. And you can string together an entirely happy, peaceful and loving life. That's amazing. I really like that. It's like, it's like you send it up, you think it's this, 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 but it ain't any of that. <laughs> but I want to ask you, like, how, how aggressive, right, for lack of a better word, should people be on this pursuit, right? Because let's say, for example, if I've got a physical health condition and I'm really, like, I've got one of our pre-diabetes, right? You've got to be aggressive in the fact that you've got to change your life, right? You've got to cut that out and really be really, really strict about it and be drastic. If it's going to, if that thing's impacting your health, you've got to cut that out straight away. You've got to move away. Is that the same kind of process that you should be doing with your happiness? Should you, if it's a toxic relationship, bounce. If it's a toxic workplace, get out. Should How aggressive should people be? Or could it be a, a very slow and gradual? Sure, there's probably going to be different courses for different horses and everybody can have a different approach but what do you think is probably your your piece of advice on that yeah so there's levels to this thing and that's a great metaphor you use you know the truth is in the beginning you have to be very aggressive you have to be very assertive about it you want to make some very dramatic changes and shifts in your life um especially in the beginning because that's when it's hardest okay and that's when even the smallest things pull you down right when you're just learning to walk 
everything is a problem. The wind blows and you're falling back down, right? So that's when you have to be very passionate and intentional and very single pointed about this happiness thing. And I often joke, you want to make happiness your top career or at least an additional career, but it should be your main goal. You know, if anything else is your main goal, it will always come before happiness and you'll always be postponing and procrastinating on this happiness thing. So I believe in making happiness your top goal and then trusting that success will follow. Lots of science has shown that, that if you can find a way to get happy without all the stuff you want, you get all the stuff you want much more quickly, easily, effortlessly, and effectively. It's pretty mind-blowing, right? So happy people make more money over the course of their life. They get married younger, stay married longer, are happier in all the relationships, whether they're married or not. They're rated as more attractive. You know, in all the ways, happiness improves the objective conditions and circumstances of your life. So it really is a master key to success, right? And so in the beginning, then you want to be very aggressive, intentional, and single-pointed about it. But what happens is over time, as you build up momentum, you suddenly find that because of the neuroplasticity of the brain, neuroplasticity of the brain, that the brain begins to rewire itself for a much happier, healthier, and wealthier experience of life. And within about 21 to 66 days, if you're very consistent with your happiness practice, you'll notice that happiness becomes a lot less effortful, a lot easier, and a lot more enjoyable. And so at that point, things that used to push you up downs don't so much. Now you got that one friend who was always super annoying, whom in the beginning you had to completely ignore and you know reject all his phone calls. Now you like have a smile for him. And now your energy dominates the room. Now your energy dominates the conversation, right? And so it's a whole different ballgame. So in the beginning, you have to be very intentional. Then it becomes automatic. Then once it becomes automatic, you still want to be intentional and you'll find yourself doing it without much effort. But the things that used to knock you off balance no longer do. Mm. Amazing. I think that was a that was a great question for me, by the way. And I think that was an even excellent answer, Robert. I really think you guys know that both. And I think that's a perfect way to kind of end it. There's so many more questions that I would like to ask. There's so many things that we can explore, um, which we probably need to do a part two at some point because you've got so much knowledge and insight in this area of positive psychology that I think that a lot of people need to hear it's so beneficial it's so powerful when you really deeper and for you guys that are listening to the audio i really want you guys to replay you know slow down the speed and really deep what this man is saying because this is some powerful things that might go over your head and i really want you guys to absorb as much as you can because this is so so powerful but for the guys that are listening rob and they're you know they're interested in your journey tell us like what's what's next with you guys with you and your pursuit where can people find you plug yourself well, uh, the very next thing is a part two with you guys because I'm <laughs> truly, truly inspired. And I mean that like on so many levels, man, you ask great questions. You're fully present. I can tell your heart's in it, your mind's in it, your soul's in it. Like you guys have done your work. Like I'm, I'm telling you, I love where you guys are at with this and I appreciate you including me as part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to find me, folks can find me at my website at coach Rob Mac, M-A-C-K, uh, com. You can find me on all social media platforms including um, Instagram at Rob Mac official. Uh, my book happiness from the inside out is available everywhere. Great books are sold including Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And then the next thing for me, I'm working on four books that will be published in the next two years. Uh, the first one's on love is called love from the inside out. Um, and then I'm working on a couple TV shows. Uh, we'll see what comes with those, see how that unfolds. And then mostly just trying to live the message, you know, trying to live the teaching, man. That's like where it's at for me because this world is, and life is not always easy, right? But happiness 
is worth the effort, right? It's worth the time and the energy. So for me, it's mostly about just continuing these kind of conversations with guys like yourself and really living the teaching. What a way to end. Happiness is worth the effort. Wow, wow. that's perfect. <laughs> that is just unreal. Well, look, it's been a absolutely, honestly, it's an honor to have this conversation with you, Rob. Like, I think that so many people, like Nick said, are going to come out of here and really do uh, an analysis of themselves. And I think that that's the big thing that we, that this conversation is going to get out. It's like, okay, where am I actually at? with my happiness? Am I putting enough effort? Is it my top job, my top priority? If not, why not? And then coming to that realization and being able to, to as it doesn't need to get to that low point before we have that trigger. It doesn't need to get to that. And I think that you're an inspiration, your story is inspirational, what you're doing now is inspirational. And I hope that people really get to that point where they can really see that and make their own transition and make their own, uh, start their own pursuit. Cause I think that's amazing. Love that. Preach. Preach that. <laughs> Amazing. Awesome. Uh, well, look, that was another episode of the Uncovered Podcast. I'll put all Rob's details in the show notes. If you guys want to follow us and you want more insight, you know where to find us at Nick and Femi everywhere. And till next time, you guys have an incredible week. And I'll see you guys on the next episode of Uncovered with Nick and Femi. 